0: Hi there, this is Trista for Governorator Show, and yes, we are listening to Inside the Actors Studio, Chris Rock. Um, I have subscribed, have you?
1: This is 15 minutes at, so into I it. Like, Let me get out of school and we'll make some money. So. Where would you go to make some money? Uh, let's see, I worked at uh, Red Lobster. I used to... Uh, <laughs> eat off of kid's plates a lot of times. Cause kids a lot of times wouldn't touch their food. So sometimes you'd be like you'd eye a kid like okay. <laughs> he didn't touch that shrimp. <laughs> <laughs> nice shrimp? No, no, no. He described to us his campaign
2: to work his way into New York's comedy
1: circuit. Did you follow that path as well? I didn't even know about comedy clubs. The way I got into stand-up, it was February 11th, 1985. Eddie Murphy tickets went on sale at Radio City Music Hall that day. I went to get tickets at 11 o'clock or some stupid hour, right? And I'm sitting there at the end of the line. I have a New York Times um, arts and leisure section. And as I'm flipping through it, Planning on staying on this line all day. There's a listing of comedy clubs in, in the Times, and it said comic strip, catch running star, blah blah blah. And you know, just like my grandfather had a calling to be a preacher, I had a calling at that moment, at that precise moment, to be a comedian. And I got off the line, and I walked from Radio City which is on 50th and 6th to Catch a Rising Star, which is on 77th and 1st. And I walked these blocks in February in the cold, right? And they said, you have to pick a number. And if you get one through seven, you get to perform tonight. And the guy came out with the hat, lucky number seven. I got number seven, right? And while I was online, I kind of wrote down some bad jokes. And I went on at 11 o'clock, and I did pretty good. And a guy comes up to me, and I was re- I'm was i leaving. I was like, okay, I've tried that comedy thing. Let me get out of here. Let me, let me get out of here before, you know, my mother calls the cops or something, right? And as I'm leaving, this guy, Mike Egan, comes up to me and says, you were great. I thought, you got, I thought you had potential. You've passed auditions and you can work the club. I was like, oh, well, what? <laughs> what are you talking about? Yeah, you can come in. I want you to start coming in. I was like, really? Yeah, yeah. Every, I said, when are you opening? Every night. <laughs> <laughs> and from that moment on, I probably went to a comedy club every night, probably for 10 years straight. You've said about those early
2: difficult times, it's my fault. It's always my
1: fault. I always blame me. Yeah, it's never the audience's fault. Never, ever, ever. If the movie's not good, it's my fault. If TV show's not good, it's my fault. Anytime I'm in front of the audience, if I don't care if somebody got shot in the middle of the show. If I can't get the crowd back, it is my fault. It's my responsibility to rock the house every single time. No matter what. <laughs>
2: What did your parents think of your act?
1: I didn't even tell my parents I was doing comedy for probably three months. Every night I would come in at like three o'clock in the morning. And my parents, you know, about the time I started doing stand up crack. Had just come into the community. Yeah. Okay? So everybody's smoking crack or selling crack or doing whatever with crack, right? So my parents were really worried. Like, I'm like, I remember them walking, both of them coming into my room one night, like ready for an intervention, ass whipping, okay? (laughs) Like, hey, what the hell have you been doing? Blah, blah, blah. Like, like, really, like, and my father grabbed me and what the and I'm I've been going on stage and I've been telling jokes and you know, dad had me by he let go of my neck and they didn't even say anything well next time, tell us and you gotta realize when you grow up in a neighborhood like that where so many people don't become anything Saying you want to be anything is good. So, my parents had no time to be offended by my act. They're it's like, he wants to do something? <laughs> <laughs> it's like, fine, he's not selling crack, thank
2: you. Boy. When Eddie Murphy was on this stage, uh, he started out talking about Chappelle. <laughs> and then all of a sudden, he was talking about Chris.
0: And I'm a family. comedian,
2: so it's not hard to see when somebody's really gifted. It's not like it was something special. I mean, he's David Chappelle. Before I showed up and said you're funny, he was funny. He just, wow, you got it. Same with Chris Rock. I the same thing. I met him in the comedy clubs. It was like, hey, that one.
1: <laughs> <laughs> so Eddie Murphy played a role in all of this, eh? Yes, yes. Eddie Murphy's my idol to this day. This is my man. He's the funniest guy I've ever seen in my life. Did he offer you an appearance in a movie? Yeah, it's weird. Um, I had a deal with Lucian Hole, the, uh, the, uh, the manager of the, of the comic strip, where if I stacked chairs after the show, he'd let me go on late. So mm-hmm. I just went to go stack chairs. And mm-hmm. as I get to the club, Eddie Murphy comes out of the bathroom, right? And I didn't just see Eddie Murphy. It was Eddie Murphy in 19-whatever-87. I mean, Eddie Murphy's cool now, but in 87, it was really Eddie Murphy, man, with with like leather suits, and (laughs) like, it was like Elvis, man, he had like a ring on, uh, leather gloves with diamond rings on, and it was like, (laughs) you know what I mean, like the guy from, like I met the guy from Raw, like that Eddie Murphy, I didn't meet Dr. Doolittle, I met Eddie Murphy. (laughs) Okay? (laughs) <laughs> so the manager introduces me To Eddie And Eddie goes Hey, what time are you going on? I was like, well, I'm not really on tonight And, and Eddie looks over at uh, Lucia And goes, put him on next And it was <laughs> Yeah Yeah <laughs> So now I got an audience with the king. I'm like, I'm next. And I go up, and I do my my shtick, whatever it was that night. And the crowd is laughing, and then I heard the, uh, 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 uh. And I'm like... I did it! I made the king laugh, right? So... Yeah. I get right. on stage and uh, Eddie comes out and Eddie like pulls me to the corner and we start talking about the business and the white people, you this
0: know. <laughs> mm-hmm. yeah.
1: I had things in my shoes, you know, I had like I borrowed my brother's leather jacket. You know what I mean, I'm hanging out with Eddie Murphy, right? And uh, I remember Murph said he said, "Hey, we're going to LA tomorrow. You want to come?" <laughs> So I go home Luckily for me My father wasn't home My father would have never let me go I told my mom I'm going to LA with Eddie Murphy tomorrow I said oh no you're not Cut to I'm at the airport They had a ticket for me It was, it was coach but it was a ticket and I went on a plane. Went to LA first time on a plane. Uh, <laughs> first time on a plane. First time in a hotel. I, I, they had a room for me. I was at, uh, at the La Balage Hotel. And um, uh, first time, first time I ordered shrimp. <laughs> I had my own order of shrimp. Like we <laughs> were doing reshoots on Beverly Hills copy. And they kind of just shoved me in the scene. And I'm like a parking valet at the Playboy Mansion. Next thing you know, they dropped me back in Brooklyn. (laughs) Uh, (laughs) I I remember my father picking me up at the airport. He met Eddie. That's that's the closest my father got to me making it. That was like, he died like not too long after that. But he met Eddie. And he wasn't even, I mean, I guess he hadn't seen the movies or anything. All he, my father would say was, you think he can get us tickets to the fight? (laughs)
2: You mentioned that your father died a short time later. Was that a big change in your life?
1: Oh, that was the biggest change in my life. Um, yeah, that was... Um, I had to uh, try, try to become a man. Uh, it was... It was just hard not having a father. It was... Let it was, um, I explain this. When you grow up where I grew up, a lot of guys don't have fathers anyway. And they just don't. And, you know, it's just that's just what it is a lot of guys don't have dads i mean everybody has a father or she wouldn't be here but a lot of guys just didn't have dads that were home and really did the dad work just did the hard day-to-day dad stuff so i was a weird kid i was very aware i don't know if, if anybody else in my household was but i was very aware at a young age that Having a father is not to be taken for granted, especially where I was from. So losing my father was like, oh, just like the worst and the scariest thing that ever, ever happened. It's still to this day. It's one of those things. Like you never get over it. You get used to it, but you'll never get over it. You know. And um, over what? You know, it just broke me down and broke my family down it was it was oh, horrible no. it's, it's still horrible to whom is your book rock this dedicated well everything i do is dedicated to my dad because my dad instilled the the work work ethic i have in me i'm the wrong guy to explain nigger even though someone would call me a niggerologist but uh we've had several occasions to talk about
2: saturday night live Billy Crystal, Martin Short, Mike Myers, Eddie Murphy. How did you enter
1: that world? A guy named Jim Pitt saw me on a videotape called Comedy's Dirtiest Dozen. I had a great time on Saturday Night Live. It was, it was the best time of my life, probably. It was uh, it's kind of like the X-Men school for comedians, you yeah. know? It's was, it was, it was like all these guys with superpowers together. Chris Farley, man, was like so funny, man. I remember, mean, you know what's really weird about me and Chris Farley were hired on the same day. And uh, we shared an office, we shared a dressing room. And because I was from bed Stuy, they worried about me more than they worried about Chris Farley. Oh, God. Yeah, they're like, hey, this is a black kid from Brooklyn, how's this gonna turn out? <laughs> Meanwhile, this guy's you know, hitting the pipe. Yeah. <laughs> 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 but, uh, he never hit the pipe. Look, in front of me. Uh, it was my dad. It was, you know. Me, Farley, Sandler, and Spade shared an office. We had, like, a dorm room. And it was the first time I was happy since my father had died, too. Like, like generally happy. Like, you know, moments of happiness that were probably, you know, alcohol-induced or whatever, but... <laughs> 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 alcohol or sex or whatever, but... I was really, like... It was almost like my father gave me Saturday Night Live. You know what I mean? Like, here you go. You know? I was like, yes! hello to off my show. Because once you get on Saturday Night Live, it's like, you know, it's it's really... You're being branded, and you're, you're, yeah. you're going to probably make it. You know what I mean? It's like, okay, I'm going to be okay. It's like my, my life's going to be okay. You know, I'm, I don't know if I'm going to be a huge star or whatever, but I am officially... In the comedy business. I am legit. You know what I mean? So to this day, Saturday Night Lives, the biggest thing that's ever happened to me, it took me out of style, took me out of poverty. So you're know, like, Laura Michaels shook my hand. I've never been broke since. You know? <laughs> you know what I mean? Like never. I haven't smelled broke since <laughs> since I met Lauren Michaels. <laughs> <laughs>
2: The credits for I'm Gonna Get You Sucker list you as a rib joint customer. What precisely did you do in
1: that? Man, you know, I'm Gonna Get You Sucker is a weird movie because it's one of the weird... Like, people today still come up to me and go, can I get more rib? <laughs> <laughs> it is the weirdest thing. I've been in a movie for... not Students out there, it is not... The size of the part is what you do with the part. I'm in that movie for a minute, two minutes at tops, and it is probably one of the most memorable things I've ever done in my career. And I've had, like, you know, the biggest comedians in the world, hey, man, I love you, and I'm going to get you (laughs) sucking.
2: In his review of New Jack City, Hal Henson wrote in the Washington Post, Chris Rock gives a nervy, almost childlike performance as a former crackhead who provides the cops their chance to infiltrate Brown's inner circle. How did that role come to you?
1: I read for Pookie. I read a couple of times. And, um, that's weird. I mean, Mario worked with me. I'm like, my voice is quivering because it's like, it's like, was a weird time in my life. Crack was big. So I had friends on crack at the time. And... I was seeing a lot of crack, man. And I was seeing it affect. I mean, I was watching guys do crack. I was watching guys sell crack. Here's where the crack and the VCR and the uh, portable recorder came out at the same time. Uh-huh. Worst combination ever. It is really, it's really what it invented. That's where gangster rap, everything came from those two things at the exact same time. So unlike heroin and opium and all the, and all the other great drug plagues of the century, crack, you could see it. I wasn't on crack, but we kind of all were on crack at the time. OK, crack had absolutely taken over <laughs> my neighborhood. And it was kind of easy to be pooky at that moment in my life. Drug dealers, for years, they thought it was a documentary or something, I don't know. I had guys, (laughs) drug dealers for years would come up to me, give me a hug, and put some coke or put some crack in my pocket. The combination of crack and the VCR created all this disgusting art you're seeing now. It's the VCR, too. They, people always think it's just a crap. The, the, the seeing it is what really, why the comedy's so dirty and why the rap is so dirty, because the guys saw it. Boom. <laughs> oh, it's always two posters. There's always two movies every basketball player, every rapper has. It's Scarface and New Jack City.
2: <laughs> the subject of stand-up comedy is a fascinating one. Since we're here at the Actor's Studio Drama School of Pace University, I'd like to start with your teachers, so to speak. What did Sam Kinison have to offer you?
1: Wow, Sam. Sam Kinison is the guy I miss as much as my father. Literally. It's like, because me and Sam were kindred spirits, kind of like... The whole preacher thing and the whole risk, a guy that took risk every time he went on stage. The last original comedian of our time is probably Sam Kinison, because when you really look at everybody else, we're all derivative of Cosby. Even though Richard became Richard, he started out doing Cosby. Eddie is... You know, obviously a son of Cosby and Pryor I am definitely a son of Eddie Cosby Like, we've all kind of go from that Sam is a whole other thing You've called yourself a hip-hop comedian Eddie Murphy's like This great r guy You know what I mean? And me, I grew up on Run-DMC and, and, and Grandmaster Flash And N.W.A. And that sort of stuff And it, it's not as nice You know what I mean? It's yeah. really in your face when you see a rapper. It's like Olympic boxing. It is like a ding, pow, like, like right away. And yeah, my, you know, those are my idols growing up. I'm, I wanted to be DMC. I wanted to be LL. In 1996,
2: Chris won an Emmy for his HBO special, Bring the Pain. Before Bring the Pain and after a couple of movies and three years on SNL, you described yourself as still a journeyman comic.
1: I was making some money doing stand-up, but I hadn't really, like, reached my potential. And I'd kind of gotten lazy, and I kind of was just... I was doing, like, one gig a month. I was making enough. If I did one gig a month, I could pay all my bills without... Or anything else? I had an awakening. I had a. I just decided I wanted to be a good comedian, and I gave up trying to be famous. And once I gave up fame and really got back into just being a comedian in the purest sense, in the sense of Kennison, in the sense of prior, just like a comedian, like Seinfeld and really just started working at clubs. I didn't want to audition for anything. I wasn't trying to write a movie. I just wanted to be a good comedian. And it all paid off with uh, Bring the Pain. uh, How long did it take you to prepare Bring the Pain? Two years, year and a half. Was that going to clubs night after night? It was night after night. I was on the road a lot.
2: There was nothing sacred in Bring the Pain. You went after O.J.
1: Simpson. Well, you shrugged, but... uh, Well, I think the cops went after him first.
2: (laughs) Nothing that Chris did in that thing, and it is an immense tour de force, stirred up more controversy after the telecast than your thoughts... On racism, white and black.
1: Who's more racist, black people or white people? Black people, you know why? Cause we hate black people too. <laughs> Everything white people don't like about black people, black people really don't like about black people. <laughs> there's some going on with black people right here. It's like a civil war going on with black people. And there's two sides. There's black people and there's niggas. The niggas have got to go.
0: Every time black people want to have a
2: is over i'll be asking you for your least favorite word (laughs) my least favorite word hands down is the n-word which i learned to loathe growing up in detroit's inner city where it occasionally raised its head like a cobra Uh, i understand what makes it unacceptable for whites but i confess that i still don't fully understand what makes it acceptable for blacks
1: now i got this job (laughs) 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 <laughs> explain, explain nigger, go ahead <laughs> I'm the wrong guy to explain nigger Even though someone would call me a niggerologist But uh <laughs> It's the same philosophy as soul food They gave us the scraps And we made it into cuisine And we You know, we took this word And we made it Into poetry, you know what I mean It's yeah, It's horrible, but put some sauce on it, and now it's, it's poetry. Um, nigger is the nitroglycerin of, of words, and in the wrong hands it can hurt. But if you give it to the right scientists, a Dave Chappelle, a Ice Cube, a Eddie Murphy, what they did, with NWA and Richard Pryor did with the word nigger is just it's art. It's, it's, it's Mark Twain. Did Bring the Pain open doors? What happened was people had an opinion of Who I was and bring the pain shattered that opinion. You know what I mean? Yeah. It's like what if Britney Spears just had this great acoustic album next year? (laughs) No drum machines, she writes all the songs, sings them with a guitar, like spears is a great artist so yeah seinfeld likes to say when you get big as a comedian they give you the kit and the kit there's a bunch of stuff in the kit the kit has your own show a book deal a movie deal (laughs) you know you you get a deal in vegas it's all in the kit (laughs) and all these things were in my kit you know the guy who makes the best movies in the world, He's like, hell we he got something for you, Rapper Bus.
2: What was the name of your next HBO special?
1: My next HBO special was Bigger and Blacker.
2: Bigger and Blacker, now that's a challenge. <clears throat> it was bigger, it was blacker, and if possible, it was even better. Where did you do that one?
1: There's a weird thing that, that happens if you're black and you get famous, and you get really famous. Uh, a lot of black people assume that only white people like you. I said, okay, let's, y'all think only white, I'm doing a show at the Apollo Theater. Let's, let's really bring it, you know? And I did the Apollo for about a week, and it was some of the best shows ever.
2: When I first came to New York, I used to go often to the Apollo, and it is my confirmed opinion that it is the best and smartest audience in the world. It's
1: the best audience, it's the best house, it's the best room to do any performing.
2: Chris's concert seemed to be carried along on a non-stop wave of righteous outrage based on a highly refined sense of right and wrong. As evidence, I will offer these headline-making observations on the subject of gun control.
1: You don't need no gun control. You know what you need? We need some bullet control. We need, the main, we need to control the bullets. That's right. I think all bullets should cost $5,000. $5,000 for a bullet.
0: You know
1: why? Because if a bullet costs $5,000, there'll be no more innocent
0: bystanders.
1: Yeah. Yeah. Every time. He shot and like, he must have did something. And they put $50,000 worth of bullets in his hand. <laughs> and people think before they kill somebody, if a bullet cost $5,000, man, I would blow your head off if I could afford it. <laughs> I'm going to give me another job, I'm going to start saving some money, and you a dead man. You better hope I can't get no bullets
2: on <laughs> You notice something up there on that screen? Did you notice the way this guy moves? I mentioned it earlier tonight. What does he move like? A boxer. Once upon a time, stand-ups stood there. I worked for a long time with Bob Hope. He stood there. He was a stand-up standing there. Literally.
1: When and why did that change? Why are you guys in perpetual motion? Some comedians are about five minutes. The experience of seeing Rodney Dangerfield is all about watching him on The Tonight Show do to about five to seven minutes. You know what I mean? So it's yeah. like, mean Me, I'm about the show. It's all about an hour and a half, two hours of that. And I think Eddie taught me this early on. It's really... It's just a little device where if you stand in one place, people can talk to their friends. <laughs> they'll talk, and they'll come back, and you'll be there. But <laughs> He's right where I left him. <laughs> but if you move, they have to pay attention. <laughs> so that, that's what that's all about. In
2: 1999, Chris and his team won the Emmy for outstanding writing for a variety of music program. For the Chris Rock Show.
1: How yeah. yeah. is that show born? I do bring the pain. And um, Chris Albrecht yeah. offers me a show. Chris Albrecht, by the way, next to Laura Michaels, probably even more at this point, is the most influential and most important person in my life professionally. Of HBO. Chris, Chris Brett head of HBO. He offered me, like, a big deal. Mm-hmm. I'm just like, not a Chappelle deal, but a good deal, right? <laughs> Doing my own show on HBO was kind of perfect. Me and a bunch of guys got together, and it was like a band. We created some of the baddest stuff that I ever did in my life, and it was the most fun I ever had.
2: Do you recall a sketch in the first episode with a joke about O.J., Simpson instructional yes
1: yes what was the name of that video the name of the video is i didn't kill my wife but if i did this is how i'd do it
2: (laughs) Chris Chris said earlier that sometimes comedians are psychics
1: all good comics are psychics psychic
2: (laughs) a psychic who was your first interview guest?
1: My first interview guest, speaking of OJ, was Johnny Cochran.
2: My that wife. was a memorable
1: well, Cochran And Prince was on the show, too.
2: Yes. But that was a memorable exchange.
1: Hey, does OJ owe you any money? <laughs> <laughs> I, said, I think he owes me
2: about $8.6 million. I think. But no, I'm only, I'm only kidding. No, no. You're he slightly
1: kidding. kidding. I'm kidding. <laughs> I'm slightly I'm kidding. I'm, I'm, I'm only kidding. No. You're no you never know about that oh, yeah. <laughs> yeah, know. Now, you're, you're like an idol to me I mean you are first of all forget the OJ thing you got Todd Bridges shot at somebody eight times you got them all <laughs> Michael Jackson had a kid sleeping in his house you talk to somebody, he's a free man. <laughs> I mean, but you don't get, you don't, you know. After this time, people got so mad at you, you know, they didn't give you the respect you would do. I mean, you know, Marsha Clark got a bigger book deal than you. You, you, kind of like Joe Frazier after he beat Ali. Kinda, <laughs> <laughs> it's like, it's like he won, but you no. Know, I guess he did. <laughs> you heard Jim Brown too. You yeah, like when it he it threw like a white girl out the window? Oh, I didn't. That, that was, that was just an allegation. <laughs> that was
0: just an allegation. <laughs>
1: She can fly, and my client just happened to be behind her. Uh, Why should he do any time Your know, If you can't fly, don't ask for a
2: while. How did the film Dogma come to you? Boxer. Hmm. Oh, Once upon a time, stand-ups Hold stood up. there. I worked for a long time with Bob Hope. He stood there. Yeah. He was a stand-up, standing there. Literally.
1: When and why did that change? Why are you guys in perpetual motion? Some comedians are about five minutes. The experience of seeing Rodney Dangerfield is all about watching him on The Tonight Show do to about five to seven minutes. You know what I mean? So it's yeah. like, yep. hey mean Me, I'm about the show. It's all about an hour and a half, two hours of that and I think Eddie taught me this early on it's really, it's just a little device where if you stand in one place people can talk to their friends (laughs) they'll talk and they'll come back and you'll be there but (laughs) he's right where I left him (laughs) but if you move they have to pay attention (laughs) so that that's what that's all about
2: in 1999, Chris and his team won the Emmy for outstanding writing for a variety or music program for the Chris Rock Show. Yes. Yeah. Well, so, teachers... How was that show born? Learn how to I do, do bring that to pain. get
0: control
1: the And, um... Chris Albrecht offers me a show. Chris Albrecht, by the way, next to Laura Michaels, probably even more at this point, is the most... Influential and most important person in my life, professionally. Of HBO, Chris. Chris Albrecht. Albrecht, head of HBO, he offered me like a big deal. Mm-hmm. I'm just like not a Chappelle deal, but a good deal, right? <laughs> Doing my own show on HBO was kind of perfect. Me and a bunch of guys got together, and it was like a band. We created some of the baddest stuff that I ever did in my life, and it was the most fun I ever had.
2: Do you recall a sketch in the first episode with a joke about O.J. Simpson instructional video? Yes,
1: yes. What was the name of that video? The name of the video is, I didn't kill my wife, but if I did, this is how I'd do it. No.
2: Said earlier that sometimes comedians are psychics. All
1: good comics are psychics. Psychic, psychic.
2: <laughs> a psychic. Who was your first interview guest?
1: My first interview guest. Speaking of OJ, was Johnny Cochran.
2: That wife. was a memorable.
1: Well, Johnny Co- and Prince was on the show too.
2: Yes, <laughs> but that was a memorable exchange.
1: Hey, does OJ owe you any money? <laughs> I think he owes me about $8.6 million. I think. But
2: no, I'm only, I'm only kidding. No, no. You're slightly kidding. kidding. Okay, so, so, so. I'm only kidding. i only kidding. Well, you better kidding him because
1: you, you never know what might happen. I'm <laughs> 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 No, now, you're, you're like an idol to me. I mean, you are, first of all, forget the OJ thing. You got Todd Bridges shot at somebody eight times, you got them all. Michael Jackson had a kid sleeping in his house. You talk to somebody, he's a free man. Yeah. I mean, but you don't get, you don't, you know. After this talk, people got so mad at you, and they didn't give you the respect you would do. I mean, you know, Marsha Clark got a bigger book deal than you. You, you, kind of like Joe Frazier after he beat Ali. He's kinda, he's like he won, but you know, I guess you did. <laughs> you remember Jim Brown too? You so like bro. when they threw the like, white girl out
0: the window? That,
1: that, was, that was just an allegation. That
0: was just was an allegation.
1: She could fly and my client just happened to be behind her. Why should he do it in time? If you can't fly, don't ask me why. How did the film Dogma come to you? Chase and Amy really spoke to me. I love Kevin Smith. I think Kevin Smith is a genius, especially when it comes to dialogue. So I really wanted to work with Kevin Smith. I had a meeting with Harvey Weinstein. You go into Miramax, right? And they make the best movies in the world, right? Yes, And, like the and all this stuff. And they offer me some BS movie about a bunch of rappers on a bus. <laughs> it's like, a rap bus. I'm, I'm sitting with the guy who makes the best movies in the world. He's like, now we got something for you. Rapper bus. <laughs> and I, I basically let him know that he was full of shit. Like, how dare you bring me in here to offer me rapper bus? We got, like, Academy Awards around. Rapper bus. I'm here, black boy. Do rapper bus for us. Like, I'm not doing rapper bus. I'm hot. I can do rapper bus when I'm cold. <laughs> So, from Harvey's um, embarrassment of offering me rapper bus, <laughs> I think they got on they got on the phone with Kevin Smith right at that moment and say, "Hey, you got anything in dogma for Chris Rock?" And they, I, I met Kevin, and we hit it off. We both love Run DMC. We're in, we're in Pittsburgh for like two, three months. Doing dogma, man. Ben Affleck and Matt Damon were on the movie. It was bef- before the Oscar. George Carlin. Yeah, George. I got to work with George Carlin and Selma. <laughs> ben and Matt were telling me about Goodwill Hunting hadn't come out yet, and yeah. talking about Goodwill Hunting, and it was just cool.
2: You want to see how cool? Take a look at a slightly different.
1: Chris <laughs> I know which Rock. one this is. How was the Thirteenth Apostle. <laughs> I've been going to church my whole life, and I've never heard of a 13th apostle named Rufus. <laughs> yeah, but you heard of the other 12 apostles. Yeah, all white boys, I might have, but no mention of me, Rufus. And why is that? Because I'm a black man. But you know what? That's just my pet peeve. I'm mainly here to correct a major error they you people have been basing the faith on. What's that? Jesus wasn't white. Jesus was black. I don't buy it. If that's true, then why did he get written about him You were left out. Well, he is the son of God. Kind of hard to have a New Testament without him. So you fudge a few facts, you put a spin on his ethnicity, leaving me out's okay because you still got twelve white boys to choose from. Now you gonna listen to this? You know that's just what the good people at Antioch said right before they stoned my ass. You were martyred. Well, that's one way of putting it. Another way is the was bludgeoned by big fucking rocks. I mean, white folks only want to hear the good, life eternal, a place in God's heaven. But as soon as you hear that you're getting this good from a black Jesus, you're freaked. And that, my friends, is called hypocrisy. A black man can steal your stereo, but he can't be your savior. You
3: gonna
2: Lee Butters in Lethal Weapon 4. Um,
1: wow. Lee Butters is one of the things that came in the kit. <laughs> you end up in a big movie. Um, what happened was they make a poster and they test the names. And they tested my name with the other name. Well, I would say like two or three other black comedians or yeah. white comedians. And my name tested the highest. Joe Silver. <laughs> Brought me down to see Mel Gibson, and Mel just looked at me and said, "Kind of funny, you're in," and that was it. So I know that some people hate Mel, but Mel gave me my first big check, (laughs) and it was it was an unbelievable experience because I grew up watching I watched Lethal Weapons so many yeah. times as a kid and it was an unbelievable experience working with Mel, working with Danny, Joe Pesci was as funny as they come.
2: What attracted you to the role of Wesley and Nurse Betty?
1: The first thing that attracted me to Wesley and Nurse Betty was I love Neil labute I'd seen in the company of men yeah. and I'd seen the husbands and wives and I thought they were genius and I was just dying to work with this guy. And it was one of those things, too. I was like, when you're really hot, I always tell, like, my manager or my agent, like, get me something I don't deserve. <laughs> like, that's, like, proving your power. You know what I mean? Like, yeah. if you get me something I deserve, that's not really big deal. Yeah. And they produced Nurse Betty. And as soon as they said Morgan Freeman, I was in. Yeah. I was like, okay, I'm, uh, Morgan Freeman's my dad, let's do it. Let's do it. I don't care what you pay me. Let's go.
2: Here is what happens when you put Morgan Freeman and Chris Rock together in front of a camera.
1: So I'm walking down Hollywood Boulevard, checking out all the stars on the ground. You know, Clint Eastwood, Rock Hudson, no people racing. Not one could not find people racing anywhere, right? So I'm looking at this Chinese guy, right? And he's reading his paper. And I look real hard. And who do I see? That's Lonnie, the main... Show. And who's that next to him, Betty? That's definitely Betty. I told you this ain't no coincidence. What
3: the f- you been holding out on me? This just does not fit her profile. It's
1: the profile? That's the same guy.
3: No no, no. No, no, no. Betty would not be here because of a soap opera. Not a soap opera, man. That would make her. That
1: would make her crazy. No sh- sham. And you ain't too far behind yourself. No, no, that's the no. It's <laughs> of... Did you stay you on this job so f***ing long. They are dragging our ass up and down the country. Meanwhile, our answer to our prayers are right in your back f***ing pocket. You let this c*** up
3: my... You talk to Betty that way. I don't care what she turns out to be. Don't you use that term again. You hear me? You need therapy. Do you understand? Yes, I understand.
1: And let go of my vest. she's stretching it. it was probably one of the best acting experiences i had i was definitely working with a master yeah having my father die man like when i at this formidable age whenever i would you know get around an old black guy it kind of became my uncle at the very least so i get i'm like just really interested in anything they have to say and I, I see him all the time now I love him to death and he's, I, I, I'm watching that just now I'm like, Dude, I really worked with Morgan Freeman? Yeah I, I can't believe it What was the evolution
2: of Down to Earth?
1: Down to Earth was fun was, uh, Critics hated it <laughs> I'd never seen Heaven Can Wait when it was out I only saw it as like a DVD Or
2: Here Comes Mr. Or Jordan Or Here
1: Comes Mr. Jordan 20 years later And I saw it one day And we I didn't have a movie to do and i had all these offers and you know they, you get all the same offers the offers are like you're 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 a con man you're a, you're you're a black guy and you don't need keys that's what i like to call them keyless you don't need keys because whenever like you're the hit talking black guy and there's a door and we don't have a key but the black guy always knows how to get in because we don't need keys you know it's like he's street smart you know I hate the term street smart to me street smart means smart for a nigga that's what it means to me hate it so I wanted to just do a movie where I was just a normal guy and it seemed like right down it seemed like it was right down my alley the interesting thing out of it is after I talked to Warren Beatty he originally conceived the idea for Muhammad Ali he wrote heaven can wait for muhammad ali because heaven can wait is a remake of here comes mr jordan and in here comes mr jordan the character is not a football player it is a boxer and warren Beatty thought that the story would work better comedically with a black lead and he he is right it's not a better movie but it does work better comedically this movie was supposed to be made with a black man twice i got to do it and I'm, i'm very proud of it when the world sees
2: Lance after his death as the character and uh, his return to Earth, what do they see? They see him as
1: as an older white guy.
2: Here's what happens when this white guy, who whom we see as the audience, as Chris, tells Lance's manager who he really is inside.
1: Whitney, it's me, Lance. Th- I- I got hit by a truck, and they, I went up to heaven. They they took my body quick, and I'm in heaven, and it's all blue, and there's the sky. And then the other guy, Mr. King, he, he kind of looked like Ricky Ricardo. And they, Look, they just, I, I don't
3: and know just, if it's drugs you're taking or drugs you need to be taking, but do something.
0: <laughs>
1: Whitney, remember when we did that gig in Atlantic City? They were supposed to pay us 500 but they only gave us 250 and we got real drunk and hung out with these two girls. We got so drunk, we thought they was transvestites. Turns out they weren't transvestites. They were just two real ugly girls. So then we brought them back to the hotel, hung out with them, fell asleep. And we woke up. What did we find out? They robbed us. Yeah, man. They.
2: <laughs> now I'm going to admit to a bias. I am an unapologetic and unregenerate admirer of the movie Pootie Tang. <laughs> where did the character Pooty Tang first appear?
1: Pudie Tang first appeared on the Chris Rock Show. Right. Sui Tang was written by Louis C.K. One night we were just short and we put it up and people just lost their minds. And Tang <laughs> is Lance Crowder and Louis C.K. and me kind of sitting back being the straight guy. What language is Pootie speaking? <laughs>
2: I've been waiting for years to ask I, you this question.
1: The language of love, man. <laughs> Sada Tang
2: how many roles do you play in the film
1: boy i play uh i got about three i play a dj i play pootie's dad right i play jb a guy just hanging out and aren't i a a cow or something
2: I'm a scarecrow
1: i'm a scarecrow there i go there I go so that's just four i'm yeah. What does Pootie's father teach him? Pootie's father is like That's my he... father. It's always the same father. Oh, I, I, I noticed <laughs> that. Everything I do has got the same dad. It's just yeah. me kind of doing my father, him. some version of my father. What does he have? He has a magic? He has a magic belt that he can whoop any ass in the whole world. <laughs> yes. Yeah. I want to say we came up with that idea with no weed. There was no drugs involved. <laughs> I just, I just call Louie one day. He's got to have a belt. he got to whip ass.
3: Just take something.
1: Uh. And the formidable
2: Wanda Sykes. is oh, so good. What? Yeah.
1: In the world, and she's just a great person. She's just a great, is harder than playing in the world series. This is the head of state. I was kind of arrogant when I directed head of state. I had done bad company and it turned out to not work and I was just pissed off at the world and I was like you know what your guys aren't going to mess me up and I'm going to direct this and do everything myself if I was in a better place it would have been a better movie I was in a real kind of arrogant place at the time but there's some really cool things in the movie it was definitely against this America at all cost mentality like the guy that ran against me used to say God bless America and no place else And that's kind of was like the attitude that the country was taking at the moment, and I I was totally trying to go against that.
2: What was the longest yard based on? (laughs)
1: Longest yard. Well, longest yard was okay. I keep saying this was the most fun, and that was the most fun. A lot of the most fun involved Sandra. (laughs) <laughs> like, so right. doing stand-up was the most fun. Sandler was around. Doing Saturday Night Live, most fun of my life. Sandler was around. Doing The Longest Yard was probably the most fun I had doing a movie because Sandler was around. It was my, one of my oldest friends and nicest guys and funniest guys. And he called me up and said, like, hey, I'm going to do The Longest Yard. I'm like, really? Okay. And he said, I'm serious. And it, he did never back down from his word and we got out to new mexico not only did we do the longest yard, but i'm in a movie with my friend who's become this mega star i, I just had a ball man. it was just unbelievable it and was, it, it was a huge hit
3: yes it
2: was <laughs> tremendous hit but it was based on a movie
1: yeah it was based on the original longest yard that starred burt reynolds burt reynolds shows up again has he ever done this show yes he has oh you, just get him to talk about wives that's it <laughs> <laughs>
2: He and my wife and I and some other people went out to dinner afterwards and we were up all night. He's oh, the...
1: He's Burt Reynolds got some stories and he slept with every big actress in Hollywood. <laughs> uh, actually, <laughs>
2: actually, you won't believe this, but we didn't get into that on the
1: show. Oh, man, he would tell you exactly how she liked it. <laughs> I won't say any name. Well, he let me in, man. He let me in. He's like, hey, man, you're not supposed to kiss and tell. He's kissing and telling and licking and telling and doing all. Oh, Rills. he's a naughty boy. And you're not.
2: <laughs> Times being what they are, the subject of animation comes up often on our stage. What do you play in Madagascar?
1: I play Marty, Marty. Zebra.
2: Marty uh, the Zebra. And Stiller's Alex. I like the lion.
1: Now, I wasn't even going to do it, but uh, just like Eddie said, you know, Jeffrey Katzenberg would not leave me alone. Yeah. And <laughs> Jeffrey Katzenberg kept calling and took me to a couple of lunches and like, you're going to do this. And then Shrek came out and Eddie started telling me what he was making. <laughs> <laughs>
2: that'll do it. Yeah, that'll do it. Reviewing head of state in 2003, the always prescient. Roger Ebert wrote, "Chris Rock is a smart, fast-talking comedian with an edge. I keep wondering when the Academy will
1: figure out that he could host the Oscars."
0: Ooh.
1: All right, how did that assignment come to you? They had offered me the Oscars. I don't know, for about five, five times or whatever. And I don't know. I just, um, I didn't want to do it. I thought the risk was too big uh next to the reward yeah and i don't know i just didn't want to do it but it was a conscious decision to have a big year i wanted to get some offers and stop writing movies and just (laughs) so i said okay they came at me and i took a meeting it was the first time i took a meeting yeah growing up my dream was to host the mtv awards which you have done. Yes, because when Great I was, Thank you. Thank you. Because when I was a kid, you know, Eddie Murphy hosted the first MTV Awards, which I listened to on the radio because we didn't have cable TV. Okay, they had a simulcast. Like the MTV Awards were like magic to me. It's like Run MC performed on the MTV Awards. Prince performed on the MTV Awards. Arsenio hosted. It was like, that's the show I wanted to do. Who else going on, Blair? Which project for that the other day? What the hell is that? Is that a movie? I thought I was watching a wedding in the woods, man. What the hell? It's like a fixed movie like Don King was involved or something. And everybody talking, oh, it only cost $60,000. Where the hell did all the money go? Where the hell did all the money go? Somebody walk around with $59,000 in their pocket. What else going on? The Latin invasion. That's right. Puerto Ricans everywhere. I love it. That's right. Puerto Ricans like, like, like it's a cockfighter song. That's right. Puerto Ricans everywhere you serve, man. That's right. Love the Puerto Ricans. Can't give them their up. That's right. That's right. Jennifer Lopez here tonight. Jennifer Lopez. That's right That's right She came with two limos One for her, one for her. That's right. I've done it three times And the last time I did it I kind of figured it can't get any better than this So the difference, you know Having MTV out of my system And this consciously Kind of wanting to have a big year So I, I sat down with a Lovely gentleman, Gil Cates
0: Yeah
1: And i told him what i needed the things i needed to host a show i'm like hey man i want to see halle berry up top you know i want to see some color and no desire to be the only black guy here i think we had a good time we got a high rating we had a fast show and it was great and jay-z and beyonce were in the front row and prince was up there and p diddy and we did our thing and jamie fox got his award and i screamed brooklyn at the end of it it's harder than playing in the world series they got seven games in the world series man and there's no more pressure in show business or sports than that first that seven minutes of of monologue at the oscars that is it your whole life is on the line and I could it could have been all over right there.
0: <laughs>
1: the Oscars are February 28th. By Halloween, say say before Thanksgiving, I had that monologue down. Down, like, yo. Ripping it. <laughs> like like I I put in, I always overdo it. I'm I'm like the United States. I will bomb you to death. Okay? <laughs> I don't want any chance that <laughs> there's gonna be any retaliation right so it was a great night i mean okay i'm, I'm sorry if i've offended any jude law fans but I, <laughs> i'm sorry i like jude law i think he's a great actor i just put him in the, in the i think he's a i think he's gonna win an oscar one day and go kiss my ass chris rock if i say you should direct you should direct. You know, if Dr. Dre says rap,
2: start rapping. In 2005, Chris and his fellow writers received a nomination from the Writers Guild of America for the series Everybody Hates Chris. He
1: described it as a functional family in a dysfunctional world. Yes, it is a functional family in a very, very, very dysfunctional world. A lot of that stuff's too, and the, the taunting, and the racism, and just the way this guy got treated by girls, and just all that stuff really kind of happened to me. <laughs> Who plays Chris? Tyler Williams plays Chris, and he's great. How'd you find him? He didn't even come in an audition. He just sent in a tape, he was like, hey, this kid's got it. And we flew him out to L.A. and he read and he was great. It's wonderful. Who plays the father? Terry Crews, who I met on The Longest Yard. Yeah. With casting, you don't want people to act. It's like, okay, let me cast a guy who's as close to this as humanly possible. Terry Crews is a father of five or six girls. He just had his first boy, like, a couple of months ago. He's been married for, like, 17 years. He's the nicest guy you ever 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 want to meet who plays the mother tashina arnold plays the mother uh, tashina arnold is a national treasure she reminded me the most of my mother when my mother got mad <laughs> like my mother like my mother's trying to get into heaven now so she won't admit that she used to curse us out from time to time <laughs> Yeah, just, you know, she's just a great actress.
2: I've read that the CW has ordered another season of everything. Yes, yes, yes. and I have the privilege to see a nearly finished print of Chris's new film called I Think I Love My Wife. We're <laughs> back on the
1: remake trail of a movie called Chloe and Antoinette
3: There were
0: still on Chris Rock the okay, you know I mean, Studio like, Okay,
1: people think this of you How do you change perception? How, do you, how are you going to really Stir it up? So this seemed like The way to stir it up the way to, to, do it. to do something real And not That was grounded in reality And not grounded in comedy When
2: was the decision made You would direct the film?
1: Really late Here's an odd thing Years ago i did ai for spielberg for spielberg so years later i had a state happens and i i filmed "Head a state at dreamworks and you know it does okay some people like it some people didn't but one thing that was constant was anytime i would see steven spielberg he would tell me how much he loved this movie and he would tell me how much he thought i should direct more and he would talk to me like a director. And he asked me, what am I directing next? And I was like, to me, had a state was like, this was like my one-off. It was like Harlem call night to something like this fun and then let me out of here, right? So one day I bump into him at Paramount. And I tell him the next movie I'm doing, I said, I think I love my wife. And I tell him Eric Romer. And he goes, are oh, you directing? And I go, no. And I could see a little, like, <laughs> like, really? Like, I was like, wow, and it just kind of like registered with me, like a little like, hey, you should, if I say you should direct, you should do <laughs> You know, <laughs> if Dr. Dre says rap, start rapping. <laughs> so that kind of like, I don't know, I just had, had this thought in my head that this is never going to happen again. If I don't do it now, I probably will never do it again. And I decided to do it was your director of photography my director of photography was a guy named will rexler head of state shot more like 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 a mel brooks movie it's like a play almost yeah. like you just walk in not a lot of movement of the camera this one the cameras i mean That's we, very free we plotted this whole thing
2: down did you find it at all difficult to move from the objectivity of the director behind the lens to the subjectivity of the actor in front of
1: it part of it is just there's no acting involved. I mean, I gotta act like Kerry Washington's hot, you know? Yeah, she's hot. That's you know, I <laughs> I'm just like, God damn, you know? So I gotta act like that, and that just came out natural. And I think I love my wife. Who plays your wife? Gina Torres. It's uh, Lawrence Fishburne's wife. I saw her having lunch with her husband <laughs> at a restaurant. I was like, they look like they look happily married. They looked at this there was something about them together that really looked peaceful. And she really was looking wifey at that moment. <laughs> and so you know what? She's the wife. Despite what looks on the surface like an ideal marriage, Richard Cooper
2: is obsessed with something. <laughs> as we see in this scene, with his <laughs> wife <laughs> and another couple. <laughs> <laughs>
1: <laughs> <laughs> you can't produce <laughs> <You, You, laughs> <you, laughs> Yesterday, little Sharon came into the room singing. a magic stick. said magic stick? What about you're four years old? What do you know about a magic stick? Hey, take your drink orders? Okay. Uh, you know what? I'm going to go to the bathroom. Honey, can you just get me some water? Okay. Excuse me. Can I talk to you for a second? Is there a problem, sir? Yes, there's a problem. See, so I came here for a lovely dinner with my wife and some friends, and next thing I know is I got these big tits asking me if I want a drink. Do you need a weight person? Listen, I'm with my wife. I don't need this. Sh- I don't need some girl with a big ass village Peters asking me if I need some help. Is this a No, sir. Is it Hooters? No, sir. I know it's a because it if it is, you owe me some f- buffalo wings. Sir, so what can I do to make this better? See that
4: guy right there? Yes,
1: I do. That's my wife.
4: Thank
1: you, sir. Where did you shoot the film? We shot them the film in New York. We did not go to Canada, where we could have had more days and made it cheaper. I just wanted to see a movie in manhattan with some black people enjoying themselves you live in New york don't you i live in jersey but i keep i'm like springsteen keeps a house in in jersey i keep a house in brooklyn how far is it from where you grew up probably 20 minutes and i keep a house in brooklyn i keep an office in manhattan that i write like we wrote the movie in, in, manhattan. in manhattan so we, we walked the streets of manhattan we ate you know <laughs> the food of manhattan you know we sucked in Manhattan. Why was your wife featured in Red Book Magazine? Uh, Because my wife's a humanitarian and she's beautiful, so. What is Styleworks? Styleworks is an organization my wife started that helps women go from welfare to work and it gives them makeovers and, you know, the hair and the clothes and gets them straight for their first job interview. What a good idea.
2: Now, would you do us the kindness of introducing your wife? To this Art. is my
1: wife, Malak. Malak, Rock, Malak, rock. How many children do you have? I have two children, Lola and Zara. Uh, the name of my new company, this movie is produced, Zarlow. <laughs> so, Very so, good. Yes, it's a Zarlo production after my two daughters.
2: For our students out there any words of counsel for them and for all of our students here at pace university
1: well the black students you are black (laughs) when you're black and in show business if you're not making history you ain't making nothing really because you're really not it's you are making history at every step every forward movement is history everything eddie murphy did was history The stuff will smith is doing right now is history you know we, I am blessed with opportunities to do things that, you know, men so much better than me and so much smarter than me and so just had never got the chance to do it. So that's my message to the black students and to everybody, you know, it's just show business is a hard job and if it was easy, everybody would be doing it and no one's entitled to any of them, I'm a peon compared to what David Geffen can do or what Jeffrey Katzenberg can do. So, you know, when you're in show business, you know, okay, Spielberg, Geffen, Bruckheimer, and maybe four other people, everybody else is auditioning. For the rest of their lives, they're auditioning. I am auditioning. I got a movie coming out right now, and when that movie is out, I am officially unemployed. I'm unemployed, and it don't mean nothing until I got something else coming out. How's that? A sport without black people is not really a sport. It's a game
2: to begin the classroom with the questionnaire that was used for 26 years by the best talk show host who ever lived. His name is Bernard Peehole. Well, Johnny Carson. It's no, no, it's no contest. You have your heroes, I have Okay, good. Chris, what is your favorite word?
3: Daddy.
2: A father speaks. What is your least favorite word? Taxes. <laughs> <laughs> a rich man speaks what turns you on
1: oh boy my gone. Uh, it turns me on uh creative people what turns you off the exact opposite people that aren't artistic i, I, I like artsy people i really do what sound or noise do you love i love the sounds of my children playing with my mother what sound or
2: noise do you hate
1: My daughter, Zara, uh, has asthma. She has to get hooked up to this machine. I mean, it's not that serious, but it's like more precautionary. So I hate like the sound of her treatment, her treatment machine. I can't take it. Well, that was depressing. No, it wasn't.
2: (laughs) Now the question that the world has been waiting for, Chris. What is
1: your favorite curse word? I can't go with motherfuckers. <laughs> you know, my grandfather said motherfucker, my dad said motherfucker, I say motherfuckers, someday my daughters will say mother. <laughs>
2: <laughs> what profession other than your own would you like to attempt?
1: In real life, I would love to have, been, like if i have went to a school and all that stuff, I would have loved to have been a civil rights attorney. What profession would you not like to participate in? I would not like to be a gay porn star. I would never... <laughs> it's not. It's not good for me. I'm butt hurting right now, sitting down on the side. Now, I went too far. It was funny here, that I took it too far.
2: If heaven exists, what would you like to hear God say when you arrive at the pearly gates? Oh, what would I like God to say
1: at the pearly gates? Hey, man, come on. I'm going to meet Tupac right now. <laughs> it might just happen that way. It just might
2: happen. Serious students.
4: boy. Hi, I'm Gail, and I'm a musical theater major. When you're writing a joke, how do you decipher what's funny and what's not? Do you just come up with it right
1: away? I kind of never write a joke. I mean, every now and then I have a joke, but... The stuff in my stand-up, like, 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 okay, here's a joke. Um, it's a Michael Richards thing. They're, like, they're trying to get rid of the word nigger. So what I did was call up my accountant and buy 800 shares of coo, just in case. <laughs> Tried to get Jigaboo, but it was all bought up. Now. That's like a... That is a joke. (laughs) What I do, I just write bullet points, and I try to find topics that interest me. The most important thing to me is that I'm talking about something that's really interesting. So those nights, I'm in Cleveland, and it's, it's February, and it's cold, and the audience isn't feeling it. I'm not up there talking about Denny's. I'm talking about something like close to the to the heart I wish I had my Blackberry on because I like, literally go down the topics <laughs> like what I'm working on now what am I working on a lot of times with me I come up with a hypothesis and then I'm like okay I'm trying to my job is to make it true comedically that's one thing I was talking about the other day the government's not trying to get Bin Laden the government's trying to get Barry Bonds that's what they're after <laughs> and I go through this whole thing how they got mad because Barry Bonds broke Babe Ruth's record, but Babe Ruth wasn't that good. He didn't play against any black players. You know, it's like a sport without black people is not really a sport. It's a game. So if you start with something real interesting, just your natural curiosity will take you to the funny place. take this opportunity to apologize to the Jackson family. <laughs> Jermaine, Janet, Michael. Uh, hi, how you doing?
3: My name is Brandon Johnson. I'm a first year actor in the MFA program. And my question for you is, have you ever come to a point in your comedy that you felt like you went too far or you said too
1: much? Before um, really? you Sometimes there is like a incredible Hulk thing that happens to me on stage. Sometimes where I'm, th- there have definitely been shows where I get off and I'm like, what did, did I say that? Oh, or I've seen like myself like on HBO and you know, ooh, that was just me. So I'd like to take this opportunity to apologize to the Jackson family, <laughs> Jermaine, Janet, Michael. In, uh, Santa Monica one day and Jermaine Jackson was coming down the street and he didn't see me but I saw him and I kind of like darted across the street like I was going to get my ass kicked <laughs> if you would have told me when I was a kid I was going to be scared that the Jacksons were going to whip my ass <laughs> so I'd like to apologize to the Jackson clan and I'm going to try to do my next special without a Michael Jackson joke I'm going to give it a shot <laughs>
2: Hi, my name is Delon Adams, I'm a first year acting student here at the MFA program, and my question to you is, what are your biggest aspirations that you haven't achieved, and what future projects
1: do you have in store? My biggest aspirations that I haven't achieved, I've done so much more than I ever thought I could pull off, um, I would, I would like to just get better as an actor, you know, and do more of that Uh, I just like to get better as a director I would like to get more introspective as a comedian and talk more about what I feel and not just what I see you know what I mean so I'm trying to like I'm working on a new special now so I'm just trying to get inside of me more Um, future projects one of the things I promised myself when I was working on I think I love my wife, was that I wouldn't work on anything else I put Madison Square Garden on hold for New Year's. So just to give myself kind of a carrot to look at something to like feel like when a dog runs the race and they got the the little rabbit there. So I'm like, okay, I'm looking at the garden. I'm looking at New Year's. That means I got to get an act together. Um, that's it. I want to play Madison Square Garden. That's it. We'll sell out the garden. 19, and not a... Not a Cut down garden. I could have done the garden a bunch of times, cut down. It out uh, 19,763. Same as the Knicks. Okay.
2: Of this series No other guest Has come to this stage As an actor Comedian Writer Producer Director Composer Pianist Jamie Foxx. Singer And recording cool. artist Our guest has appeared On television In In Living Color And as the star Of his own TV series And comedy concerts And the acclaimed drama Redemption He has shown Remarkable range And growing power In films As varied as Any given Sunday Fate, Ali, collateral, and the groundbreaking brave. The Actors Studio is very proud to welcome Jamie Fox. Oh. Yeah, horses.
0: Got that That's how he got that role in that good Quentin Tarantino movie Django, because he was already he already rides horses and stuff. Pretty cool, man. All
2: right. New York City, what up? Yeah. Yeah. So, yeah. For more than ten years, we have been tracing the steps of each of the guests in that chair. Since genetics play a part in that process we begin at the beginning. Where were you born?
3: I was born in Terrell, Texas. Where is Terrell? Big metropolis, right outside of Dallas, Texas. (laughs) About 12,000 people, six stoplights. Everybody knew your name. What is your Uh, father's name? My father's name now is Shahid Abdullah. Uh, Yeah. (laughs)
0: Uh,
3: At first, it was uh, Daryl Bishop. And the name on your birth certificate is? The name on my birth certificate is Eric Bishop. Eric Marlon Bishop is how it started out. That's Clark Kent. Jamie (laughs) Foxx, is like... A yes. And uh, We're all inclined to agree. Your mother's
2: name? Louise Annette Dixon. How old were you when
3: your parents separated? I don't know exactly when they separated, because at seven months, I was in another family. How did that happen? Well, what happened was my mother had me, she wasn't really prepared or ready to, to take on that responsibility. And the lady that adopted her also adopted me. My parents, who I consider my parents, were Estelle Talley and Mark Talley. Now, technically, legally, yeah. your mother is father. My sister. Technically. Because both of you were adopted. Both friends. of us, and so it's a Southern thing, but yeah. <laughs> it also points to a couple of extraordinary mm-hmm. people. Your grandfather's profession was? He was a yard man. And your grandmother, did she work as yeah, well? Yeah, she was a maid. Yeah, two yeah. but you know the thing is is that my grandmother was they had savvy she had her own business in the 60s she had a place for it, and she was you know babysitting those kids ages from three all the way up all the way up to 18. you've described your life as a lot of church yeah yeah yeah, yeah, you got to get to church, man. In the South, you know, that's the thing. And was this your grandmother's and your grandfather's influence, both of them were very Oh, yeah, yeah. It was about that, uh, you know, God-fearing uh, uh, type of people, and that's what we came And to. family. Oh, family. A lot of family, big Thanksgivings, big Christmases, you know. But uh, it, it helped me because... She had the bow and arrow, and I was the arrow, and she, you know, she let me out there, but she made sure she aimed me in the right direction, and because of that upbringing, I think it's where I am right now. You know, you've described yourself as making big-time money at the church on Sunday. Oh, yeah, man. What did that consist of? Hey, at that time, I was 15, and I, I was making like $300 a month. How did you make the money? I played the piano. I had a couple of churches I played for, you know. They give a couple of offerings, and they let me have a little bit of it. Oh, boy. Was there music in your home? Yeah, but not music outside of church music. And then every once in a while my grandmother, she said, Well, I like that Lionel Richie boy. <laughs> <laughs> it seems like he sings all right. So I drew my curl out, got my glass, and I started the <laughs> Jerry Girls? Oh no, not Jerry Curl, not Jerry Curl, California curl. Bigger. Had a bigger You knew it had a bigger rollers. Look out. Yeah, you know. I like it. Trail, man. I had a low in the front, long in the back. Kind of looked like a Z 28. Now,
2: didn't this special grandmother arrange music lessons for yeah. you very young?
3: Yeah, what she did was it was a lady in Dallas who taught piano. She would come to our house and on the weekends all the kids from the neighborhood would come and take piano lessons. And I started at five, about five years old, six years old, and started playing and I, I was too young to know anything else that it wasn't cool. You've said my grandmother raised me to be a southern gentleman. Yeah, that's what, what I am. What does that consist? Southern gentleman is just the things that we kinda like take for granted nowadays in our music, how we you know we kinda hard on women right now. We kinda hard, you know, you gotta be tough but me come from the you see a beautiful woman. You have to court even if it ain't beautiful. Just a woman, period. Speaking of women, mm. the- <laughs> you're looking for that, huh? You looking for something? You're looking for something? You have said about those years, it was beautiful, but oh, strong dose of discipline. Oh yeah. Who was the disciplinarian? Well. My grandfather was the one that actually did the mechanics. What were the mechanics? Now he actually did the he actually did the whooping of the ass. You know? I think my last major, uh, major beatdown was at uh like 1314. And that's when they, you know, that's when I said, okay, I I, think, I see what's going on. I'm gonna spend it all. It's the truth. you know what I'm
2: saying? You said we weren't rich. We weren't poor either. No. Money didn't matter. It couldn't replace the summers we had. You
3: cannot, you cannot explain. For the kids today and people out there today, they miss miss out on so much. I think when we were growing up, I mean, everybody in that city raised you, and everybody was trying to make sure that you got your education. Everybody's trying to make sure that you were a happy kid, no matter where you came from. And I think we miss a little bit of that today.
2: Didn't your grandmother advise you that if things didn't work out elsewhere, you could always come back to Terrell mm-hmm. and work in the hospital?
3: <laughs> what was the hospital?
2: I'll tell Granny,
3: I'm in mean, New York, I'm performing in front of like 8,000 people. That's all right, baby, but you know, if it don't go right, the sanitarium is high. <laughs> <laughs> it pays $11 an hour. And it was things like that that always kept you know, Graham, She said, no matter what's going on out there, I still got you just in case you fall.
1: love it a little more. Wayfair.
0: Spend less. Oh, yeah. Get way no more. Ads, man. Terrell oh, yeah. High
1: School had a
2: football
3: team called Terrell Tigers, man. Terrell Tigers. Nothing like them. What position did you play? I played quarterback my senior year. You hold a record there, don't you? Yeah. What was it? Uh, most uh,
2: yards thrown uh, by quarterback senior year over 1,000 yards. How old were you when your grandfather
3: died? I was seventeen.
2: Seventeen. Did that happen at home?
3: Yeah, my grandfather passed. It was it was different, man. It was uh I uh, I I had a choir rehearsal that night and I never get my grandmother rushing to rest until my door and said uh, something's happening in the market. I went in and uh he was passing away and I, I performed CPR and uh, it, it, it's it's it was for me at that time it was a uh, it was almost scientific, almost weird, like the, the, the difference between living and dying was breathing and your heart pumping and or not. What did you do after high school graduation? Uh, my grandma said, you're 18, you gotta get out. And I was like, I can't even stay for the summer, you gotta get out. <laughs> and I went to International School of Performing Arts in San Diego, which was complete culture shock meet Geographical cultures. No, I, I, it was 81 different countries that went to that school. Really? So when I would see a person that I thought was white, I said, "Hey, what's up, man? That's your little that's your little or <laughs> <laughs> well, I see a brother. What's up, brother? Hey. The way that man comes and nigga,' because <laughs> I only come from black and white, and in the come see all of these people, to see see people from Israel, people from Iran, people from from all over the world getting together on this thing that they call art and blew my mind. And it took me a minute to kind of get used to it. Now, I finally get my dorm room, and who's with me? A white guy from Oklahoma or Nebraska. And all his records was Rush and Kiss and... you <laughs> <laughs> he said, hey man, can you help me get my records out? I'm like, ah, a problem. I don't know none of this. But forced to live in that... In that dorm room together, we saw Sharon. I said, you heard of LL Cool J? No, I haven't. Boom, give him that. He gave me Rush, found out all this this beautiful instrumentation on these rock and roll records, and then that's when my life started to change. What was your major? My major was classical piano. And now the reason for that is because my grandmother stayed on to get the classical piano. She said, you may need this. She was giving me all the things that I may need on my journey. And luckily, they had a minority program. For classical piano And I get there And
2: I had a Russian pianist teacher And a Yugoslavian music theory teacher How did an international university music major Recently from a small Texas town Morph into a stand-up comedian?
3: I was taking a risk Because my grandmother And everybody had pulled so hard for me He's going to California He gonna be somebody And then when I get there I find out that the music Was actually too tough for me The school was actually Not exactly where I wanted to be and so I had to figure it out fast without without hurting the integrity of my family. So with the stand-up comedy, I would go back and forth to L.A. just to figure out, okay, this is it. I went to Hollywood first. That wasn't a place. And then somebody kind of navigated me through to this comedy club. And I said, this may be a way for me to uh, kind of get in on that. How did it happen? Uh, just a day, man. This girl I was dating, we went to this amateur night. And people it was kind of bad. She said, I was bragging them. She said, well, you get up there took a couple of drinks, and, you know, and then I just want to say, open mic, and I uh, went on ask asked Cosby, I went on and said, you know, sometimes people in the building, the the and you know, they started laughing, I started rolling with it, but some of the brothers was like, man, we already seen that, man, we already seen that, dog. can you do something else? And I was the only black guy at the time doing Ronald Reagan. You know? So I said, well, you seen that, but you ain't seen this. Well. Well, as a matter of fact, there you go again. And the next thing you know, out of nowhere, this thing opened up to me and I said, I got him. When did Eric Bishop vanish? Eric Bishop vanished the night that I wasn't funny on stage. <laughs> Like uh, my name is Eric Bishop, and, and it wasn't happening. So the next time I went up at another club, they said, "What's your name?" I was like, um, "I." So I wrote down all of these different unisex names on this paper because they choose from that paper for the amateur night, and usually girls would always get a good spot. Right? So I wrote down unisex names: Stacy Brown, Tracy Green, Jamie Fox, and they picked Jamie Fox. and said, is "She here?" And I'm like, "Yeah, I'm right over here, man." And I went on as a filler. Uh, uh, And killed, and then I had to stick with that night. There it is. How did in living color come into your (laughs)
4: life? Here's why I threw away all my blood pressure meds drinking this before bed can lower blood pressure by 26 points. If you're over 50 and struggling with high blood pressure, then you need to hear this
0: people are getting their blood pressure under control. Thank you
3: okay, well, we can audition like everybody does. So it was a hundred comedians. I think I just jumped in and got down to five comedians. We were at the Laugh Factory. So I go on stage and it's all industry. It's all you know different from you know what I was doing. The 8th funniest person on the show. I know that. They would come in and eat. Kenan would eat
0: me. They would eat me. And then Jim Carrey would just eat that
3: He released in his box and gave his blonde wig. He said, Try to started doing things. They were broke. David Alan Grey goes, Hey man, you gotta say, uh, you know, I'll rock your world, man. I'll rock your world. And then his character was born, man, and it was, it took off. It was incredible. The first time we did it, nobody knew what was going on. And people, and, and, and literally, I came out. In that dress, in those lips and eyes. It was <laughs> like, you know, this thing. They
0: really don't know what the name was, but they really don't know what the character, the character, too
2: I think it's safe to say that they recall an irreverent film.
3: Some of that, of course, was shot in Africa. I'm yeah. saying uh,
2: again, like that, African.
3: Why oh, are you doing all this old city stuff? Man. That's what we He just gave me $15,000. And I wonder what keep on doing. What are you doing? And she was the person that was there for me no matter what it was. She said, the boy, whatever you're doing, he said, just remember what happened that I told you and did to you. You're going to be all right. So she was fine with everything. I'm I would mean, now like you know, to uh, turn our attention
2: to another theme of this series in the last 10 and a half years. <laughs> That name, as our students won't know, is tattoos. Because my wife, seated in the front row, will not allow me to have a tattoo. And therefore anybody who has a tattoo on the stage, I engage in this eternal debate. I believe even than my eyes to see that you're tattooed. Yeah, it's a tattoo. You've got oh, to have this
3: tattoo. How come I it's not real? It's actually for moving.
2: Tom Cruise was in that chair. in at midnight. Wow. Got on an airplane, flew all night, and reported for duty in Los Angeles to resume shooting a movie with you. Wow. And that was, of course, Collateral. Max needed a level of reality and he but also strength and a physical presence that Jamie just organically has. One of the strengths of this movie is what's happening to Max
3: internally Through that long, terrifying night, but the circumstances yeah. won't let Max show you. Michael Mann said, can you play a cab, y'all? I said, come on, mind you ought to do my thing. He said, well, can you not do that? Can you be simple? Can you be run Can you be Can you be indecisive? And so what I did was I went on onto a character by the name of Bentley Kyle Evans, who was my producer on my television show. Bentley was a nice guy, he, and he worked with some people that were not so nice, and he was able to work with them for five, six years, and never had a serious problem because he was able to maneuver. I said, "This is what Max is." Good I'll tell you what happened. Great director, officer, and gentleman, devil's advocate. I like him. He and Rachel set out to do the story 15 years even longer now. I'm happy that it took 15 years in order for it to roll in this direction. Had to wait for you. Had to wait. Had to wait for that country boy to get over those tracks go through all the things we talked about. He said, what's a problem? I got to find somebody to play piano. I said, well, luckily, Grandma, they gave me these tunes that I got. Let me see if I can. He said, oh, yeah. And he said, wow, it went from 45 music cues to 96 music cues. And he said, this is amazing, because now I can hold you in a frame." Didn't Ray Charles himself have a yeah. He walks in with that smile and that sway, and he's going, wow, man, it almost it makes you tear up a little bit. He, he is the man, and he grabs me and says, oh, you got strong fingers, let's play the blues. I said, what? We got on one piano, you got on one piano, I got on another. He said, Jamie, if you can do the blues, you can do anything. So we started singing back and forth the blues, and then he moved into the Thelonious Month. Man. Yeah, man, anybody, anybody, anybody that knows, that's like Treasure's Water. I was like, oh, whoa, oh, oh, whoa, oh, oh, whoa, whoa, where you going? And I hit the door and said, that was a wrong note <laughs> and he said, that's his picture. I said, I don't know what my the fuck are you doing? He's right underneath your fingers, man. <laughs> and so I keep sitting there in life. I use it for the film. I said, life is notes underneath our fingers. We just got to figure out what's the to, to play one. to make our I music. Mean, one of the most astonishing things about this portrait of Ray Charles is his mastery. This difficult, much more difficult than it was, aspect of the blindness, Or well, those prosthetics I said. Just look over your eyes. Look over my eyes. It was the, the, the thing. thing that I wasn't ready for. Okay, you gotta keep them off, uh, for 14 hours a day. And you can't see. And I couldn't see. It was hyperventilating. It was, you know, I too you know, much. You know, I gotta I want to rip them off the like you and I would literally get up and try to get away. So you gotta stand. One of the remarkable things about Ray is that this mm-hmm. motion picture drama contains as much music as any of the classic musicals. Mm-hmm. In the film, there
2: are moments when, when you actually sing. Yeah. Sometimes it's Ray, and sometimes it's Jamie. Guess what? Mm-hmm.
3: You don't know. which yeah, what I sing. It was hours and hours in the hotel room, getting it right, getting the finger right. right. I couldn't goddamn really believe my family. <laughs> Leave your
1: family! Damn fool, you know. Between the dope and the music and me, you already let your damn family. But the sad part about it is,
2: man, you don't even know me. You know From now on, it's strictly
4: business between you and me. Yeah, this is. A, this is the it's the road, Jack. It don't come back no more. It's the road, don't come back no more. don't come back no more. It's don't come back no more. What you say?
2: Went right with this ambitious production, particularly with Mr. Fox's amazingly and uncannily charismatic performance. That a mere Oscar seems grossly inadequate compensation. You ain't been here more six days since we moved in. No, Ray, no, no. a needle am going way. Help
3: you with God, Pray! Oh my god, you have this go blind. Hey, just for a little <laughs> light, and you know what I mean? Cause God, don't do nothing. Because God don't wrestle with people like me. Stop I mean, talking like mean, that. I mean, as far as I'm concerned, me and God is even. I do whatever I want to do. Goddamn, to corner shooter, I shoot a book. Well, then go ahead then. But you walk out that door, and I'm going to do something I
0: should have done a long time ago, Rick. Right? I mean. I mean. I'm going to take my boys, and I'm
3: going to leave. You have no place to go. No place. No, You think I'm scared of losing this? How much of a movie was Ray with see CD before he died? Ray viewed the whole movie in his own way. So he was able to
2: say, okay, everything is cool, I can go along. This brings us to the final note of this evening. As our audience here knows, Jamie has come to us selflessly and courageously
0: tonight. He was supposed to be here ten days ago, but something happened. What happened? What happened?
2: questionnaire invented by
4: Thing.
0: John Travolta interview inside the actor studio two thousand three.
2: Encompassing a span of twenty eight years, it began on the small screen and welcomed back Connor and the boy in the plastic bubble, then moved spectacularly to the large screen with Carrie,
0: Saturday Night Fever, for which he received Golden Globe and Academy Award nominations, and one the National Board Review Best Actor Award. Greece, for which he received the, the word, is the word that Urban you heard. Power.
2: Best Actor Awards. Guess Short, which earned him Golden Globe and American Comedy Awards. Broken Arrow, for which he received two MTV nominations. Phenomenon, for which he won the Blockbuster Award. Michael, She's So Lovely. Face Off, for which he received a Blockbuster nomination and won the MTV Award. Mad City, Primary Colors, for which he received his fifth Golden Globe nomination. A Civil Action, for which he received a Blockbuster nomination. And basic. Joe West has selected him as the star of the year, and he has received the American Cinematheque Award, the Blockbuster World Artist Award, and the Chicago Film Festival Lifetime Achievement Award. You will find his star on the Walk of Fame at 6901 Hollywood Boulevard, and the Actors Studio is proud to say that you will find him here on our stage tonight. John Travolta.
0: We tried to uh, get a hand job or whatever from a masseuse. <laughs> if that doesn't make you happy, I don't
4: know what
2: will. <laughs> <laughs> a number of our guests, Chris Reed, Susan Sarandon, Kevin Spacey, and hailed from New Jersey. I believe we have another candidate. <laughs>
4: oh, yeah. well, obviously, so do some of our students. Where were you we born? Englewood, New Jersey what this troubled me. Uh, I was told by my father it meant high voltage. And the man responsible for having that evocative name. Tell us about him, I received a, a, a yearbook of this yesterday from a journalist. 1932, and, and under his picture it said, I crave action. He was a semi-pro football player, basketball player, and baseball player. And he's in the Hall of Fame with New Jersey. And uh, he also was in business with his... Uh, his brother, and they owned a Firestone tire shop together. And we was, it's, I, I <coughs> worked with her. And my mother a bunch of other people. She sounds, sounds very cool. interesting. Nice. My mother was very interesting. Yes, she's very theatrical. She was a drama teacher and actress and director. And uh, she, uh, she was mm-hmm. the kind of mother that would put us to sleep with, uh, with scripts and uh, plays instead of fairy tales. What were the sunshine sisters? sisters was a, a musical group that uh, she formed with her best friend katherine and they had a radio show in manhattan and they sang every sunday night i discovered later that from that she was up for the film contract in hollywood and her father kind of restricted that possibility and um she kind of never kind of forgave him for that and i think i fulfilled the, the, uh, the dream after that no one would be able to guess how many times we've heard that on this stage Oh, really? Sure. Did you have any siblings? All right. I have three wonderful sisters and mm-hmm. two wonderful brothers. And uh, they're all actors, and they're they're quite good, too. Were you really the youngest? Mm-hmm. Her mother. She was a director. Yes. Mm-hmm. What did she direct? Mm-hmm. Oh, she directed Light Up the Sky. She directed uh, all the musicals of the day, like Her Lady. and Where. Uh, in uh, various theaters around the Jersey Summer Theater. I read that she was a fan. He's a good mimic, and as we all are in our family, pretty much. So uh, I, I uh, <laughs> the fatal error. Uh-huh. Oh, why is that It's an Do you really? John? Oh, we got to wear a play tonight. <laughs> <laughs> you have inherited that great gift. Well, I, I enjoy it. How good I'm at it is is an interpretive thing, but I enjoy it. I enjoy but, having your repertoire? Oh, you name it. I've got them there. is is not only my red card, but an old friend. I can say that. I want to hear more. James, you are a very interesting Mm. man. What what kind of paper is that? These are blue card, Mom. Blue cards. Do you know the man that invented the the blue card? No. That is the the best-looking face shirt I have ever seen. (laughs) I don't like it. me perform for hours, and who knows what I was doing, but I would just watch them, and they would think I was brilliant, and, and they have all these accolades about my, uh, you know, lip-syncing some record or something, it was what gave me the confidence that I later used in every one of my performances, uh, Nothing could, nothing could ruin it. I remember being told one time in an audition that I should get out of the business, and I thought they were absolutely nuts.
0: <laughs> <laughs> <laughs>
4: I, I, I didn't go away in. dinner, I thought what a silly, of people they were. <laughs> That's good parenting. Okay. But, but your mother has said that you were a lonely child. Is that true? I don't know if I was lonely as much as alone. Why? Uh, because I was the last, and everyone's off to school, and so it was mostly uh, running around the, the house, uh, traumatizing, who knows what. I was also uh, quite a, a, a tenacious and bratty child as well. I mean, I not uh, pretend I wasn't. I was uh, very dramatic. You know, I'd run to the attic and scream as though, you know, I had just jumped off the, the roof and uh, just to see her reaction. You know, and I didn't say anything to my father. I would, I would just test the reactions. Run away. I ran away every Sunday <laughs> with a stick and, a, and, a, and a, a cloth like the old movies. Put, yeah, put my white bread in there, which I would never eat. And I, and I would go down the block and stay there for about 15 minutes. And then I'd run back home. And my dad did this every Sunday I'd hear the song as I crept up the stairs and he'd say, I wonder what became of Johnny. <laughs> <laughs> Dear old boy of mine. And oh, that's my <laughs> kid. He'd go, and he'd say, Johnny. And <laughs> <laughs> I'd run into his arms and it was say, uh, they indulged me. <laughs> Play a part in your life as a kid. Oh yes, uh, Jimmy Cagney was my favorite, and Hanky Doodle Dandy was uh, my favorite movie at the time, and I could do his dances, uh, say his lines. I was friends with him for five years when I got to Hollywood. All the old-timers liked me, and I had, none of my contemporaries kind of had a lot to do with me, and it might have reflected that relationship I had with my parents, because they were quite a bit older than I was, and, and I, I don't know if I was as comfortable with peers, you know, and so when I got to Hollywood, uh, Carrie Grant, Jimmy Cagney, Fred Astaire, Gene Kelly, Barb Stanley, they all they just would invite me to dinner and uh, asked me to hang out. And I got to really know them and talk to them. I uh, got great advice from them. Did you take did dancing lessons, lessons as a kid? matter of fact, I took uh, dancing lessons from Gene Kelly's brother, uh, Fred Kelly. He uh, was in New Jersey, in Orodell, New Jersey. He had a little school. And I uh, I did uh, learn how to tap and do jazz there. And you know, what was the New Dimension Theater? The New Dimension Theater was an offshoot of the uh, Actor studio that, that hibernated in my uh, town in Anglewood, New Jersey. And, and my mother was the, the, uh, the director of that uh, theater. And uh, I begged for an audition. I heard they were doing Cool cool stable flower by Frank King Dubai, Yeah. And there was part of a young boy, 12 years old, and uh, I auditioned and they called my mother and said, he's a natural and, you know, could we yeah. use him for a 12-week run So I got to be with all these wonderful actors that took their craft very seriously, and uh, that was my first real job, you know, was with that group. It was a a lot of actors that wanted to live uh, on the outskirts of New York, and and they wanted a group to be able to play with there as well, but they were all actor studios, actors. So you're one one of us. Yes. And during those years, were you going to school? Yes. I went to a Catholic school for the first five years, which I didn't do too well. Which school was it? It was St. Cecilia uh, School, and I was going to be put back in my fourth, uh, fifth year. And then uh, they said, but if I went to public school, I could be promoted. Uh, and uh, that was like music to my ears. I couldn't wait to get out of the regiment yeah. with uh, nuns pulling my needle haircut. Other, other things that would happen, but uh, I, it, was, uh, it was liberating to go to a public school. with was Mrs. Schwartz. Mrs. Schwartz was my German teacher. Yeah, that's a good one. And the, the only reason I really took German was because it sounded so much like English. Um, and I know that sounds odd, but when I saw, um, can I have a glass of milk? Was can I thought, to oh. have that glass of milk? I thought. That's, that's going to be a cinch. <laughs> see it's, 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 it's Come over here, sit down. I mean, it sounded just like English. You know? do you, uh, I was pretty get In those early years of school and theater,
2: did you ever encounter a Christian brother? A brother Bernadine, later called Brother Gene Graham. I think he directed you a baby by
4: bird. Oh, yes, 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 yes. I do remember that. The a very, very dear friend of mine. Yeah, it's wonderful, and it was a good production, too. It's where I found my agent, my manager, ultimately, and I probably wouldn't be here today if that hadn't happened. He was quite uh, exceptional, and that was the production that I was discovered. When and why did you leave high school? I had had my, my 11 years of school, and I just thought, I uh, I knew enough to balance a checkbook, and uh, and I knew how to do all the rest, act and sing and dance, so I thought I'd better go out and make a living. And... Uh, it seemed that every commercial I went up for I got, or uh, every play, or off probably play, or summer theater job, I had good, good success at. Did I see you on Mutual, New York? Uh, was that a question? Yes, I remember my right guard. was the right guard? One of your... Oh, I had about oh, 50 different... Did you really? I think, I think so, yeah. The commercial subsidized uh, things on food <laughs> and rent. Oh, oh. How did you wind up on the road in Greece? I auditioned uh, in Los Angeles. For the stage show of Greece, and I got it, and I was immediately put on the road, the first national road company, and that's where I formed my daydreams about doing a movie. How did Over Here come into your That followed Greece, and it was another Broadway show, and um, the same producers of that show uh, liked me and put me in the uh, musical Over Here. And then I was heading for my third Broadway show, and um, my manager said, "No, you really have to make a decision whether you want to stay in New York or be out west because you're being victim to some degree, and I want you to take advantage of it." And uh, I did, and all went all went well. All well, went so well that we're about to hear a little hour ago because we're
2: going to talk about welcome back, you. <laughs>
4: And really, kind of adding a, a few layers uh, to this guy that I thought would be um, very, very effective, and they were because I was immediately doing screen test and then a, a Lynn who was a fantastic kind of casting director at the yeah. time, really pushed my my being in it. You said
2: I instantly knew the character, but I managed to give it more dimension. What was that dimension? Basically, the the uh,
4: stupid he was he, he, and, and, I, and i mean that added uh, that woman <laughs> or yes meaning that, that that i felt that he was written kind of tough and i thought it would be much funnier if he were kind of dimwitted. Uh, you see and that was an important layer to, to add because to because it was a, a comedy. comedy how much of videos have you I it's nothing really no. i mean we, I, I i was no i mean, Characters that are nothing like me that feel I feel at play that uh, it's, uh, it's hard to. The greatest compliment you can receive is that people think that you are that character, obviously. Yes, and everyone did for a couple of years. My, my years mother was so... T- I mean, my mother had... She worked so hard on us not to have New York accents that, that the idea that I became famous on a New York accent it was like chalk to her back. I mean, she loved the character and all, but you have to, you have to understand that my household, everything was slightly affected. It was darling, he really, really wants another glass of autumn juice. <laughs> it was, you know, that whole era of actors that we kind of resisted. Yeah. And then I realized there was a lot of fun in behaving like that. Later on, I didn't mind being affected. But originally, I grew up in kind of an affected household. So the idea that I was. You know, she would go on talk shows and she'd say, you know, my, my, my boy is, doesn't really speak that way, you know.
0: <laughs>
4: <laughs> you, know and, uh, you know, and I, I felt bad, but it was, it was, uh, I said, well, we'll do a time off and we'll get out of that hole. Of course, I did Sarah Fever took that accent home. <laughs> I mean, she's, she's sitting next to me at a Gannon Moore, thinking, Oh God, I've worked my whole life to take that accent away from him. And now he's getting to get a Gannon Award nomination for it, so. <laughs> I'm sure she didn't lie. She didn't lie. Uh, Vinny had a very colorful way of expressing himself, especially when annoyed. Uh, recall, uh, recall a few of his favorite put uh, downs. that? There was Up on Under Her Hose. <laughs> yeah, there was, uh, what else was there? My by Casey. Off my case, with a... something? Off my case, toilet (laughs) face. (laughs) Toilet
0: (laughs) face, yes. We have a number of guests here who have been on series. Carol
2: Burnett, Mary Tyler Moore, Roseanne. And they talked about the pleasures and also the fact that a family was born in these series. Did it become
4: a family for you? Oh, absolutely. But I was very... You know, I I saw this as a stepping stone, this this whole uh, television series. I thought, there's a prejudice here in town. And I don't think that TV stars can into film. So as much as I enjoyed my family unit, the Cotter boys, I was taking my whole paycheck and putting it into a publicist yeah. <laughs> and putting it into, uh, you know, uh, acting lessons and, and other things, exercise that I could do. So I had literally not enough money to afford my fame at that time. I couldn't answer my uh, my fan letters because it was all going back into the career. How many fan letters did you get a week? Oh, gosh. Um, Times 10, 20,000 or something. Oh, a week. Yeah. It took the, the movie career to get enough money to answer the television letters. <laughs> we talked about Carrie <laughs> when Sissy SpaceX was here. Did you have much contact with Sissy? Yes, I did. Uh, I used to try to go into her trailer and flirt with her uh, <laughs> here and there. The film is by Pauline Cale and all the yeah. critics that, that loved her, so the, the importance of that movie became quite significant, but we were all very lucky actors to be part of that, that group. You know. I wish for every one of our is that what happened to John so quickly happens
2: to all of you, so quickly. Look where we are now. The second movie changed John's life, and in some respects it changed the landscape of American pop culture and American cinema was of course Saturday night theater
4: In the end of Tragic Life, he knew how to write a script. He really did Yes, he did. And he created real characters in that. Yes, he did a lot of your work for you, which is a lot of what, what I think great writing does have the work for the actor. You know, uh, it's when the writing is not so good that you have to really push up your sleeves and get to work, you know, but great writing does have the work for you. When you got far, were you into disco dancing? Not particularly. I was on this way out. Clothing I wore in the movie that. Polyester, this and that was all uh, finished when we did the movie. I thought I was doing, honestly, an art film. But really, that was uh, that was a slice of life uh, about a small group of people in Brooklyn that were obsessed with with uh, disco dancing. And that I had a very interesting character to play. I did not think it would be a big commercial movie at all. I had the clothing for Santa Fe, I had acted up the village here in the back of the store in, in tops and shelves and pull-up boxes because they hadn't sold those pants in three years. They hadn't sold those shirts in two years. Uh, that suit was kind of a classic suit, so that was being, you know, they sold it. But that's how out of date we thought all that was when we were making it, so I thought I was doing kind of a little retro movie. And then it became like it had never existed before. How did you train for the dance? Well, again, it was the era of, of, of De Niro dropped the gauntlet. He, you know, he he learned how to play saxophone for a year. He learned how to become a boxer. And that was the feeling in the air. If you want to take your craft seriously, it was beyond just the standard fare. You you really became the best at the thing that you were supposed to do. So I took about nine months of my life, and every day I, I danced to become what I thought was a great local disco dancer. I like that. today. airport, and there was a customs, a smoked glass type of uh, apparatus that was there, and I thought if there's no one there, it means I didn't get nominated, but if there's a group there, then I did, so I ran across there, and all my friends were there, and they were, and they were cheering everything, was like a slow-mo show, I just noticed <laughs> two dear friends, one, <laughs> Pat Burks, Didi Conn right here on we
3: introduce them, sure, Didi Con.
4: And the the movie in Greece. So we went way back together. And we have the same character now. to Drinking or anything, and uh, of course Scientology helped me a lot. But I still was a bit overwhelmed by everything, and I dealt with it as best I could. And uh, and it took about five years to calm down from that. Was Scientology a home base for you? Oh, absolutely. Absolutely. It also helped as an actor tremendously. All the the details of the the technology are also assets for an actor. uh, The tone scale alone is the actor's too very emotional too. Says he wasn't Patrick Swayze at that time. uh, He was pre Patrick Swayze, and he he had a very famous mother that was a fascinating character um, who 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 choreographed mean, Cowboy and uh, taught us all the country western dancing, and she was excellent. But uh, literally, Patrick would would, would either be my partner or demonstrate. Was that Elon Gillies' Bowl? Oh yes. I had the thighs, and the you know what. To, to, to prove it, it gets you right there. Oh, yeah, okay. <laughs> gets you right there. <laughs> no, I, you know, but the thing is, is that the glorious thing about being an actor, we get to do everything and, and, and anything, and, and then we get to taste it all, you know. Uh, and I love that part of it. I mean, wow, wow. What, a, what, a, what a life we have. What a life is in store for you. Uh, reviewing.
2: physical sensitivity like that with a very young Brando, I praise,
4: from a high source, who are the actors that have most influenced and shaped you. Cagney, and Brando, and Paul Newman, and Mark Beatty, and then later De, uh, De Niro, and Pacino, and uh, I'm a big fan of Tom Hanks, I, I, he's the only other career I like other than mine. <sighs> Pinter's work, and, and I, he said, read this, and, and I'm like, thank you. I read The Dumb Writer, and uh, I had, again, it was one of these gifts that you, I had this character in my back pocket because I had a butler at one point in my life that was a nut, and, 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 and tried to do awful things, uh, and, and when I was reading this, this, I went, oh my god, I know this character. I know I know this character really well. And then I thought, well the real test will be Harold Pinter. Who am I to be doing Harold Pinter at this point? And uh, and I did it and he said, that was the best interpretation I've ever seen of that <laughs> part. How did you get it? I said, I knew the guy. <laughs> In nineteen
2: eighty-nine, you were very successful what he called the top. The character you played by Lucas strong as being the rule to that point that was most like yourself. Why? It's not that I don't have a personality.
4: I just <laughs> I just don't feel that I have that strong of character attribute. I felt like the character in Lucas Hoffman was just, you know, a nice guy who who liked kids and and I have a sense of humor and and I just felt pure, straightforward, and real to some degree, and and, and it didn't demand a lot of character attributes, which is my favorite thing to play. WC feels
2: warned famously against trying to act with animals, children, or actresses with severe lead <laughs> <laughs> How many kids played the
4: baby? Well, that movie probably a, probably had three infants and two or three uh, two-year-olds that, that were entertaining all And I thought there was a masterpiece in getting those kids to, to express what they did. I don't know how she did it. Amy Herkeling it was genius how she was able to get the subtlety and the Yes, it was. You were also acting with Christy and Tom oh, worked so, so well, well together. She's, she's just a freak of nature. <laughs> she is uh, an exceptional human being and funniest person I've ever known in my life. She's very She is very funny. And of course, I was one of the few people that could make her laugh. You know, I, mean, I, I we we had her one and only kissing scene. And she had a crush on me and I had a crush on her as before Kelly. and You know, I decided that I would be, every time she tried to, to kiss me, I would be Barbara Streisand. So, why <laughs> don't you kiss me? You know, and she said, I can't kiss you and you, Barbara Streisand. Don't do that. <laughs> That was the challenge. Very interesting to laugh. She makes everyone laugh. And I am a funny person. When these students graduate, their master's degrees, though, will facing the same updrafts and
2: downdrafts that have confronted more than 130 guests here. Between 1980 and 1994, you had personal and professional successes like a dumb later. Look who's talking. But those 14 years have been variously described as a fall from critical heights that you reached in the late 70s and they've also been described as a self-imposed exile now neither of those may be so what in fact was it and how did you perceive it what
4: was happening probably the first question you asked me about my parents i was always a person with a lot of confidence and i never took very seriously anyone making less of me i think you learn by your failures and you learn by your mistakes but you don't take them to heart as soon as you do, um, it takes the spirit out of you. It, it, it kind of, you die a little bit. Look, the world is dark as, just, it's as bad as it gets. You look at the newspaper, it's bad news. You look over your shoulder, it's bad news. You want me to cry, I'll cry right now for you, because I can find so much sadness in the world. I can find so much tragedy. I can find so much heartache that it will just be massive, okay? Now, where's the joy? Where's the spirit? Where's the fun? That's the goal to me. So, I've never understood why so much is hard on the negative, because negative is easy. Dark is easy. And doing it artfully, yes, we must all do that. But I find it much more interesting to find out where the joy... So, during those times, I probably perceived negative... I went for life. I learned how to become a jet pilot. I traveled the world. I rubbed elbows with all sorts of people. And I learned what they were about. And that was feeding me, you know. I had a choice. I could have believed that things were finished. Things were over. That life is bad. That life's not worth it. Why don't we all die or something like that? It's just not, not my nature You see, so my feeling was that you get through that the best you can by living life fully and using the spirit of other people to feed you and you feed them and you rise above it all that way. So I had enough people that cared for me and loved me and I loved them and I, I kept it afloat. And uh, I was working, you know. I worked a couple of jobs a year. They might not have been at the high end or the top end uh, uh, as it is now, or, and as it was in the beginning. But I never, I never gave it too much credibility. You see? Yes. Why would? I, why would? I? You know, shame on you. If you get a few people firing at you and you think you're crap, suddenly shame on you. I believe. It. <laughs> apartment which I recognized the, the address 1236 North Crescent Heights. I said, I live there. I said, I know that building. So I pulled up and I went to the building and I knocked on the door and this guy answers the door, pleasant fellow, and I said, don't say a word. I said, you turn to your left, you got a pink tile with maroon tile mix. I said, you go to the left and make another left and you've got the refrigerator on the far corner. I described the whole apartment. His mouth was open. He said, I said he used to live here
0: (laughs) how ironic is that I mean that's amazing right he was really cute he said he had this
4: fantasy that I would play games with him from the show I did like there's a book about Cotter game (laughs) so I would play the game and then suddenly I'd say a line from uh, from Cotter you know and I was fulfilling this dream of his to, to do this and then we moved on to the, the Certain Fever game, which I mean, you don't make games out of movies like Certain Fever and Greece. I'm just right. what is the game? Yeah. <laughs> right. And then about midnight and we've already eaten something He he throws me a left hook. He says, I'm so disappointed in what you've done with your career. I was like, whoa. Take it what do you mean? And, and he just went into this what your folk thought about, you didn't know what Paul and Cal thought about, you didn't know that how brilliant you were in the blah, 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 I'm almost in tears now, thinking, well, yeah, but I didn't know when someone cared that much about all that, you know, and clearly he didn't, and uh, he said, but I want to fix all that, you know, uh, <laughs> and uh, he said, I, I want to, I have this movie idea for you, and I said, well, what is it? And he tells me this movie about vampires, okay? Well I'm about as interested in vampires as I am like, you know, redoing this carpet. You know, I've just I've never been into the blood thing and I've never been into the, you know, uh, I just it's just not interesting to me. So I'm thinking, oh my god, this kid that's gonna like give me my second career and he's like what's gonna be a vampire. Sam was, is the ultimate pro. You know, Sam comes to work very well prepared, and, and, and I admire him. He, he heightens the the um, experience. He, he There's a the few actors who work with that actually make you better just by being with him, and he was one of them. Uh, but you know the a funny thing about Europe is so, what? Uh, it's the little differences. I mean, they got the same stuff you that know, they got here, but it's just, it's just there. It's a little different. Exactly. All right, well, you can walk into a movie theater in Amsterdam or buy a beer just like a little paper cup, I'm talking about a glass theater. And in Paris, speak about a Pierre McDonald's. Do you know what they call a quarter pound of cheese? Tuesday.
2: We talked about a wonderful film called Get Shorty.
4: the book she said well, what do you like about the book i said well i said for instance this line or that line i said well tell them that that's what you want to put in there and, and, and go go back to the, they'll accept that they'll do that so there's several things like that through the movie that i just went back to the book uh, to um, to improve it one of my favorite scenes i get Joy is when he gives <laughs> daddy de an acting lesson <laughs> martin look at me i am looking squinting like any need glasses.
2: When you're not talking, but just thinking. Oh, completely. I do know that I have a, a gift of uh, transparency in my eyes. Yeah. I've always uh, been able to think a thought, and I could read very easily uh, on screen. When Broken Arrow came out in 1996, Janet Maslin in the New York Times described you as an irresistible, bad guy, smoking, swaggering, wearing shades on the keynotes of the oldest performance here. But they have the right cachet. He stays lovable terrorist audiences will love to hate you've made a specialty of winning us over to some very
4: shady characters i don't know, I don't know how i did that what are you looking for in these bad guys that make us so interested in you i never believe that you have to like a character or love a character i believe that you have to want to watch them yeah that's what's interesting to me because there's many characters i don't like i didn't like that character but i love watching them what
2: threw you to a very interesting movie called phenomenon Yes. <laughs>
4: sex. He loves smoking. He loves eating. And um, he loves pontificating on his vast history as a human, And any choice was correct. Any choice was me. correct. It's as a care as an actor. I felt the freedom that any if he wanted to be contemporary and yet fine. If he wanted to be stoic and historic he could be. Because he, he was either was a nut that had these fake wings That statue that you remember with his big wings, and she let me do Unshaven, it. she let me do that. And uh, from the time I got to walk down the stairs in the fashion, of taking my time and scratching my balls, and all that, I felt tremendous freedom and character.
2: She's so lovely. It was the last screenplay to bear this distinguished pedigree. Yes. And who wrote it. Don Cassavetes. Cassavetes.